1998, I had just uh, become a, an Anglican, and I was uh, doing theology at university, and it was a university where Anglican would-be vicars came to the faculty of the university and joined in with our lectures. And I looked around at them, and I was feeling God calling me to be in the Church of England, and I was like that, what's that scream picture, like, ah, <laughs> do you really want to stick me in with this punch? No way. And I can remember sitting around a, a table of about 20, 25 uh, students of all sorts of ages, because they were uh, would-be vicars, some of them quite old, uh, certainly compared to me, age 20, and uh, hearing this passage read out, and uh, talking about a rebellious people. And I remember thinking, God's calling me to these people, and I need to set my forehead like flint and uh, do what Ezekiel says he's going to do here. Um, so... We're going to look into the, the book of Ezekiel over the next uh, number of weeks, and we'll, we'll, we'll dip in and out, do like four-week series, and then go on to something uh, lighter in the in-between weeks. But these are, are great uh, chapters. And to introduce it today, I've brought um, a story with you. This is uh, David Pawson's introduction to the whole Bible, Unlocking the Bible, a unique overview of the whole Bible. And I'm going to read to you uh, his introduction to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, he's rather masterful, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. And Lord, please would you enlighten our hearts and minds as we look at the scriptures and we look at David's work and help us to understand this book in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is uh, David Pawson, a one-time minister in Guildford and a frequent speaker at uh, Spring Harvest and other events like that. The book of Ezekiel is the most neglected and least favorite part of the Old Testament. The first half of it is almost unrelieved doom and gloom. This depressing text leads many readers to give up and move on to another book of the Bible. <laughs> the book is long and repetitive, and it has 20 years of preaching squeezed into it. Much of it is not relevant to our situation. It's in another world at another time, and we're not familiar with it. Language that is at times crude and even offensive gives further reason for dislike. He's selling it quite well, isn't he? <laughs> so, few would say it's their favorite book. Furthermore, and this, I think, is even more significant. Ezekiel shows a side of God's character that few find appealing. The prophet speaks of the severity of God's judgment. The typical radio or television religion focuses on God's goodness, but rarely on his judgment. And that's how people like it. So at first sight, there seems to be little encouragement to read the book. But books like Ezekiel challenge us to ask two questions. Why do you read your Bible and how do you read it? These two questions are related because the reason why you read your Bible will actually determine how you read it. Method will flow from motive. So how to read Ezekiel? On the whole, he says, there are three approaches to reading a book like Ezekiel. And the first one is the verse-centered approach or the self uh, approach. Uh, and this is what people are looking for a word for themselves. He says, I'm tempted to call it the horos horoscope method of Bible reading where we read through until a verse fits our situation. It pops out and it's speaking to me today. But this is not how God intended the Bible to be read. Indeed, you'd have to go a long way through Ezekiel before, hopefully at least, you found a personally relevant verse that leapt off the page. Devotional Bible reading can be useful and is better than nothing, <laughs> but it's not the right way to read the Bible. It's essentially a self-centered way of reading. So that's uh, his dismissal of Version one, the verse-centered approach. Uh, version two, the passage-centered approach, or others. 
Next, there is the passage-centered approach. Some Christians read the Bible mainly for the sake of other people. Certainly a lot of people hear sermons mainly for the sake of other people. This is especially the case for, for preachers and teachers who are wondering what they should preach about. Four passages in Ezekiel are special favorites with preachers, and uh, see if you can score a bingo on these ones. At number one, chapter... God, it's in every worship song ever. <laughs> uh, number one chapter in Ezekiel that people turn to. 37, that's right. Uh, made famous uh, in, in his era, at least, by the Negro spirituality, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. It's the, the passage that talks about a valley of dry bones as themes of death and life and extraordinary images of bones joining together, covered with flesh, makes for dramatic effect. Uh, passage number two, and I'm doing a pop quiz on you here today, so if you can guess the second most important one, this is one about how bad teachers can be or how bad priests can be. Ah, oh, that's, that's a number three. We're looking for the bad preachers one. A number two, anyone know? Woe to you, uh, bad shepherds. It's chapter 34, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 34. If you've got a 34, tick it off on your bingo sheet. And it's especially uh, used when you're inducting a new pastoral minister, really, to put the fear of God into them. Uh, the subject matter is good shepherds and bad shepherds. The good shepherds are those who search for the lost sheep, while the bad shepherds feed themselves. It's easy to use this passage as a basis for preaching about the responsibilities of the pastor or vicar or worship leader or curate or whoever you want to pick on that day. Chapter 47 is uh, Valerie's in the front row. Uh, that's the, uh, another preaching favorite. And this is the allegory of the temple. In this chapter, a man finds a river flowing from the temple. He steps into it up to his ankles, then to his knees, and then to his waist, and then is deep enough to swim. So preachers use the water as a picture of the Holy Spirit. They say, how deep are you in the Holy Spirit? Are you swimming in the Spirit or are you just paddling? Who's heard that sermon before? Who's given that sermon before? <laughs> um, but geographical details in this context, such as fishermen at En Gedi by the sea in the Araba Valley, surely intend the prophecy to be taken literally. The Dead Sea becoming full of life with the influx of desalinating fresh water is a miracle of nature. But preachers find it easier to spiritualize such events and apply them to human nature, especially if they have problems of supernatural intervention in the physical realm. Interesting viewpoint. So the allegorical treatment of the Old Testament has a long history in church pulpits, emanating from the Greek disdain for literal and physical in the teaching of Clement and Oregon of Alexander in the third century AD. So here are three favorite passages. The last one, I bet you don't know, is one that's all about sin and how bad we are. Not, not a particular favorite, but in chapter 18. And this is uh, one uh, that focuses on the personal responsibility of each person for their own sin. But you'll know this phrase uh, that comes in it. The fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. You heard that phrase? It's the idea that the sins of one generation are visited on the third and fourth generation. But Ezekiel counters it in chapter 18 saying actually on the day of judgment, you can't blame your daddy or your granddaddy or your great-great-grandmother. It's you who's going to be accountable for your own sins, whatever they got up to. So you can't blame them. You have to take responsibility for yourselves. So four popular chapters out of quite a long book, if you flick through it, and uh, the rest of them are generally left alone. So two ways of looking at the Ezekiel. One is the uh, what's-in-it-for-me one, the 
devotional reading, Bible verse one. The second one is picking on the four passages that are quite useful. Um, and then the third one that he's advocating here, which we'll try and pick out over these uh, coming months, is what he calls the book-centered approach or the God-centered approach. And David Pawson says, this is the best approach to Ezekiel. It involves getting a grasp of the whole book rather than just parts of it. Only by doing this can we really understand what God is saying to us through it. Ultimately, the main reason for reading the Bible is that we might know God. Bible reading teaches us what kind of God he is, how he responds to us, how he feels about us, and what he will do with us. So if we avoid Ezekiel, we avoid a crucial part of God's revelation about himself, and we miss out on what it teaches us. When Christians read the Bible book by book for the first time, he says he always recommends using the Living Bible, which is a sort of amplified version of the Bible um, that you can read through. It's, it's a, it tries to translate the feelings expressed in the Bible, a paraphrase, not a literal translation. And the Bible is, of course, the word of God and the word of man, so we can look for it for both inspiration and interest. And there's a great deal of human interest in it, God chose to communicate his word through people in all their complexity, at particular times and particular situations. These are not ivory tower speculations, but words that make a difference to the world and to people's perception of it. We can understand the real life situations portrayed in the Bible, and so through that we appreciate the way in which God's word came to real people in real history. When preachers take the divine word out of its human context, boring preaching and teaching is the result. So woe to all the preachers. So we're going to be trying to sort of find what's the whole book about, how is it, who is it speaking to originally, and, and most importantly, uh, what does it say about who God is, and then from understanding what it say about who God is, then we can say, well, we now know more about God, we know about our own situation, now, given that we now know more about who God is, what does that speak into our situation? So rather than every verse is about me, we're trying to see that every verse is about the eternal God, and then finding on there. Fancy a little bit more? Okay, with another few minutes? You got a few nods in there? Great. The background to Ezekiel, then. It's vital that we grasp the historical background before we look at the major themes in Ezekiel's prophecy. A century before, the ten tribes of Israel had been carried off to Assyria. That's those northern tribes, if you remember from Sunday teaching. Um, they've been split ten to two, and ten of them have gone. They had ignored the warnings of Amos and Hosea, and, uh, and they've been deported from their own country. Ezekiel was concerned with the two tribes in the south, the Judah tribes, who turned out to be even worse. Despite their warning from the northern brothers, they'd fallen into godless behavior and had ignored prophets like Isaiah and Micah, who we've just been looking at on Sundays, in the lead up to Christmas, and who had warned them of judgment to come. When Jeremiah comes a little later, they ignore him too. They ignore the little prophecy of Habakkuk, that they're going to be in the hands of the Babylonians. So finally, the worst happened, and Judah has been deported off into Babylon. They've had some bright spots in their recent history, but these haven't been enough to turn the nation round. And so the spiritual situation is generally bleak. When King Josiah discovers the book of the law during a spring clean of the temple, he was horrified to see how far people had drifted from the law of God. They were even, and this is, this is really how bad it had got and how bad the human condition is, they were even sacrificing babies to the pagan god Molech in the Valley of Hinnon. 
which is the, the place that Jesus uses as a picture of hell in the New Testament. So Josiah attempts to reform the nation. He removes the high places from the land and tackles moral corruption in society. But it was too little too late. It was in vain. The people's hearts had drifted too far away from God. I don't know, risking a little sort of link into the contemporary world. <laughs> it feel like that sometimes to you, you're sort of looking around going, could we ever get back to God as a nation? So here, after that, there comes a succession of bad kings. You had Josiah as a good king. Doesn't quite make it to getting people back. And then you've got Jehuhaz, who reigns for just three months before um, being, uh, failing to stand up to Egypt. And then came Jehoiakim, uh, Josiah's son, but he was unconcerned about the spiritual state of the nation. And then he was replaced by Jehoiaz, who was a puppet king of the Egyptians. So at this stage in her history, Judah was at the mercy of uh, two big superpowers, um, Egypt in the southwest and Babylon, which is sort of Iran, Iraq, up in the northeast. God could have held these big powers off, as he had done in the past, but he had also promised that if the people drifted away from him, they would not know his protection anymore. I mean, that's, that's a sort of seminal thought, isn't it? It gets to a point where you can drift away from God so much that he says, okay, you're going to face the consequences that I've uh, threatened you with. I've been doing this with my children. Like, you can come down and watch the match if you have a good bath. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, well, you can make it up to me if you like, because I don't want to put them to bed. So, <laughs> you know, if you, if you do a bit better, then you can come down. And then I sort of give in another little bit, and I'm like, well, if you really try, then you can make it. And then eventually it's like, no, that's it, you've gone to bed. And God is incredibly merciful, but there's a point where he goes, enough's enough. So Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes and invades and controls the country for three years before finally leaving. And in this time, Judah suffers a series of attacks from various nations, Arameans, Moabites, and Ammonites. And the result is that by Ezekiel's time, all that remains of Judah was the city of Jerusalem, now totally under foreign domination. And a final blow comes when the Babylonians return and they besiege Jerusalem on its hills for two and a half years. Finally, the city's taken. All the treasures are removed, just as Isaiah had prophesied. All the top people were taken away. This was a favorite trick to reduce a conquered people to helplessness. So the first deportation takes away 7,000 army officers and soldiers, 1,000 craftsmen, 10,000 sort of artisans, tradesmen, leaving behind them only the very poorest people. Incidentally, Prophet Daniel was one of those who got deported at that time. And it looked as though the whole purpose of God was being brought to nothing. Zedekiah was the last puppet king of Judah. He was allowed to rule in Jerusalem with just a small army. Once again, the city was besieged and Zedekiah was captured by Nebuchadnezzar's army. They killed each one of his sons before his very own eyes so he would see the royal line come to an end. Then they removed his eyes as the very last thing he saw was his sons being destroyed. Then Nebuchadnezzar ordered Jerusalem to be totally destroyed. And that's the sad tale that you can read um, if you get that far in your Bible in one year in uh, 2 Kings 22 to 25 utter destruction of everything and that's the context into which Ezekiel is called to preach and we'll pick up on his uh, his preaching uh, next time a little sort of scene setting uh, how we begin to understand uh, God in this and you, you might want to to read ahead and get familiar with Ezekiel 
as we look through it over this coming uh, term or so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do keep your promises. Thank you that you will not be thwarted, that you can raise up incredible powers to do your will. You can hold off punishment and judgment from your people. But eventually you will not have your ways thwarted. Thank you that we can rely on you to be righteous and just. Thank you that you do not tolerate evil. Thank you that we can rely on you to vindicate all who are oppressed. Please would you help us to understand the scriptures more as we look at this uh, difficult book of Ezekiel and to understand you much more as well. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.